Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyber Labs. And today we have JD Steer with us. And JD is a little different from our usual guests. I've known JD since at least middle school. And he has a story that just has to be told. And he's done some amazing things since college, like work, work at the White House, produced multiple films on serious issues in Africa, and has become a leading expert in leading campaigns and crises around the world. And he's also a regular contributor to Politico, Huffington Post, and is a recurring guest on MSNBC. So that's the J.D. Steer you guys all know about, but I know definitely a different J.D. Steer. And so, so that's J.D. the professional. But before as a professional, J.D. had some rough years, including spending around two years in prison, which J.D. can correct. And so we'll talk about those years, and then we'll talk about how he turned his life around. So and I'm, I'm curious how his overzealous youth years kind of helped him later on. And but one thing I always know I know growing up is that JD is always a super nice guy. So JD, thanks for uh, coming in on the show today. Great to be on, Dave. Thanks for having me. Definitely. And so I think what uh, maybe we'll talk about what you've done a little bit since college, um, and then before that, then we can talk more about growing up and your youth years. Um, so Sounds good. Yeah. Can you uh, after after college? You know, can you give us a little bit about what you what you did and. I bet you got involved with the Obama campaign, but what did he do before then? Yeah, so when I was at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, I had a, a part-time internship um, working with uh, counselors, working with teens uh, there in the Madison community that uh, you know were involved with gangs and drug activity. It was a prevention and treatment center. Uh, when I graduated from UW in 2004, I uh, got into law school, and that had been my plan all along. I wanted to be a, a legal advocate, you know, fighting for youth, fighting for humanitarian causes. And the teen center offered me a full-time job, and I was, you know, still pretty young, had a lot of street cred with the youth, and uh, felt like I was really making some traction, um, connecting with them and, and trying to prevent, you know, a handful of them. Um, from winding up behind bars, which is where a lot of them were heading. So I followed my heart and uh, and took the full-time job and, and deferred law school and ended up then spending um, all of my 20s uh, counseling gang and drug-affected uh, youth in the Madison area. And that, that job, uh, which didn't feel like work to me, it just really felt like living a very connected life, sharing values and, and getting involved in people's lives and their families' lives, by doing that work, um, I became increasingly connected with uh, Wisconsin's politicians and kind of naturally segued into uh, becoming more of an advocate uh, for these youth. Uh, Wisconsin's prison population is of the most racially disproportionate in the country. It's also grown the fastest per capita uh, for many years uh, during our tough-on-crime mass incarceration um, ramp-up. And so... By advocating for the teens and forming some of these relationships, I got to know uh, Senator Russ Feingold and a handful of other uh, Wisconsin politicians. And through that relationship, when Barack Obama was running for president, uh, I was talking a lot about how much I was excited uh, for this candidacy and, and what it meant for the country and me and, uh, and just speaking up about it a lot. <laughs> uh, one of uh, Russ Feingold's um, top staff uh, spoke to them about it, and uh, they got behind uh, making introduction to the Obama campaign for me. And uh, it's pretty, uh, I think, pretty extreme move on their half to uh, to have a convicted felon drug dealer uh, working on a presidential campaign. But that that really cemented my belief in in, in the campaign and, and ultimately President Obama's values and people around him that they're really looking for new voices, looking for. Uh, opportunities to to build relationships to really get meaningful traction on progressive reform. So, boom, that was it. Uh, I got the campaign job, and that led to a lot of great stuff, including uh, ultimately uh, an Obama presidency and uh, and a position for me inside the White House. And all right, so I got yeah a, a lot of questions. We probably just on that we probably that that could be a whole podcast right there. But 
Um, <laughs> so going back to your attorney, you could have been JD Stee or JD, which would have been pretty, uh, pretty cool if you got if you became an attorney. <laughs> That's just a side note. But um, so when you're counseling the youth, you know what would be kind of a, a I don't know if a typical case or how would you somebody would come in with and they're in trouble. How would you kind of walk them through um, getting back to you know getting out out of trouble? I guess. I mean, I can I can relate with some common threads that that a lot of youth that are facing gang and drug troubles and temptations um, can face. Now, everybody has their own very unique and individual human experience, and their struggles and their challenges are are very unique and special to them. Yet, there's a lot we can connect on and, and a lot that I can empathize with. And so, you know, to say there's a typical team, let's just say someone's coming in and, you know, they've gotten suspended from an athletic team. Uh, because of drinking or, or getting caught with drugs at school. And so, you know, youth oftentimes have a handful of positive engagements going in their life right now, a sports team, a, a club, an association, maybe a, a relationship with a family member uh, who's stable and healthy and professional. And so they come in at a time when they're really at a crossroads. Um, they're starting to challenge authority. They're starting to uh, engage in high-risk behavior. And, uh, and yet, you know, their, their whole future is open. You know, the future is bright. You know, with a handful of right decisions, you know, they could be valedictorian and, and shooting off the university and, and engaging in, in any life that they choose. And so really the, the, the only standard in that process is, you know, getting to know, getting to know someone, you know, building some trust so we can open up and really be real about where we're coming from, what our struggles are, and then really just facilitating the self-reflection process. So that you know, our youth realize on their own, you know, what their decisions are leading to, what options for their future they're closing with certain high-risk behavior, and then really supporting and enhancing better decision-making. And I think for me, it was helping youth connect to their passions, connect and discover new passions, um, something we innovated when I was at uh, Madison's Connections Counseling with the incredible Shelly Ducks. Um, is, uh, you know, speaking tour, uh, nature programs. Um, I'm an avid rock climber and camper and hiker. And so why not, you know, one Saturday a month, take all the, the youth out on a rock climbing trip at Devil's Lake or on a big hike. Um, and ultimately with the speakers tour, kids that, you know, had gotten 90 days clean where they hadn't done alcohol or drugs for 90 days, uh, we'd bring them around to the schools for them to share their story with Madison Public Schools. Um, and as, as soon as they start to realize that their experiences, their struggles, their story can have a positive impact as long as they're living a positive life, um, that's where you really start to see some exponential growth. So I really looked at myself as a tour guide, you know, ha- yeah. helping, helping you start to reflect, but then also starting to connect them to some other opportunities and then really celebrating and amplifying uh, those good decisions. And, and now all these years later, uh, there's a handful of youth who went through that program that I've, you know, met up in New York or D.C. or L.A. and they're doing incredible things uh, with their lives. Really? Wow. Oh, that must be great. That must be a nice feeling. And I mean, do you think because of your, uh, do they mainly hire people with a, a checkered background like you had, so that you can relate what they're going through, and the kids would probably listen to you better knowing that uh, you can relate. I think it's it's rather common in substance abuse treatment to have um, therapists with uh, either addiction in their family or addiction in their own personal background, but okay. it's surprisingly rare, um, and not just in Wisconsin, around the country, to have uh, individuals who've been involved in the legal system, you know, come out of jail or come out of prison, um, working with the youth. Really? And I think that's something at the policy level we've really got to get creative and try to solve because some of our greatest assets um, of being able to connect with youth, empathize with the youth, and truly help youth kickstart a new life are men and women coming out of, of prison after serving time for nonviolent drug offenses. And, you know, our country's got millions of these uh, individuals coming out with resiliency and skill and, and ready to start a new life. And for me, getting welcomed back to Connections Counseling, um, that was the, the foundation, the, the base, the, the, the place I could plant my feet and feel connected to the community. It has everything to do um, with the rest of my 
uh, post-prison life, having that base to return to and feel connected to at that teen center. So I think we're, we're missing a huge, a huge resource pool uh, in our country to help our youth uh, with with all the extreme restrictions we place on individuals when they when they get out. No, that makes sense. And and so um, so why politics? You know why why did you uh, what uh, prompted you to move from? Because it sounds like you enjoyed the counseling a lot. Uh, what prompted you to make your next move and start helping the? You know, you got to know the Feingold folks and the Obama campaign. Yeah, it's a, I, I don't like politics, and I typically <laughs> okay. don't like politicians, and I'm not a political party guy. And really, I, you know, having worked in, in campaigns and in the White House, I'm not a fan. <laughs> and, it, it, you know, the, the whole system is so corrupt, you know, with ridiculous money, ridiculous influence from some ridiculous lobby groups that just keep so many of us, working class, entrepreneur, you know, students, uh, you know, women and children at a disadvantage because of the status quo. So, you know, our political system is a mess. <laughs> I'm not a fan of it and, and wasn't in any way like drawn to politics. Uh, quite the opposite. It was through, you know, very personal uh, interactions I had with individuals, you know, human connections where I realized human beings are being held down, you know, all across the country. And that the government is engaging with individuals around certain behaviors um, and making the situation much, much worse. And so it was really a, a way to respond at the personal level um, for my own experiences, but the experiences of the youth in Madison, Wisconsin, that led me to start speaking out against the political system and challenging politicians to do better. And it was in that vein of activism that I started to connect with some reformers. Um, that held office. So Russ Feingold, I consider to be one of our more dedicated humanist reformer uh, politicians. You know, he, he really bucks the status quo. And so I've, I've formed very few relationships with politicians because I think there's very few politicians um, that, are, that are serving the public. Um, but it, it's through those relationships that I've formed some alliances and been able to be a part of a, a political process where then, then the hard work comes in, and that is a long and slow struggle. If you're dedicated to change on an issue, um, you got to be in it for the long haul because you know you could take a look at health care, and a lot of people want a single payer system to come out of that, and they look at Obamacare as a complete failure. Well, tens of millions of more Americans now have access to health care. Nobody with diabetes is going to be denied health care ever again. So you got to look for those more incremental wins. And I don't think 30 million Americans on healthcare and, you know, never again being able to deny them because of a pre-existing condition is incremental. I think those were huge victories. But I think I've realigned my activism to look at what the real win is, what, what level or degree of progress is possible. And so I'm in it for the long haul, but I think I've let go, let go of a lot of my you know, childhood, Madison, Wisconsin, you know, idealistic utopian <laughs> views of how the whole world's got to change and all these sectors and all these administrations, that just isn't going to happen overnight. And so got into politics to make some specific changes. And I'm just a few years in now that it's going to be a, a lifelong struggle. Oh, that's great. And, and, uh, do you, do you remember that the first, I've never seen a video back in the Obama campaign, you know, it was, eight years ago and uh i've never seen a video of you like kind of uh, getting everyone pumped up do you remember the first event that you kind of led and uh were you nervous for it because uh <laughs> <laughs> oh man what a what a question so there's some backstory here uh, at the time wisconsin's governor was the honorable jim doyle uh you know someone i think most most in wisconsin but especially uh, teachers and, and public employees really missed. <laughs> and, uh, and so Governor Doyle uh, was going to come to our Madison Obama headquarters grand opening. And I think this was the first weekend in July of 2008. Now, a little bit of background. I spent two years in, in prison in the state of Wisconsin, and uh, the governor is the chief executive for the state. And so you know, it's ultimately the governor that would entertain uh, a plea for executive clemency or a pardon. Yeah. Uh, but it's also the, the governor that you would petition for early release. Now, I, I served my time and, and I got out and I was going about living my life 
as a youth advocate and, and increasingly as a political activist. But here I was, you know, less than eight years out of prison, uh, full-time staff on the Obama campaign, and we're going to be launching this event, and I'm just going to be standing side-by-side by, you know, Wisconsin's uh, governor. So <laughs> nervous, uh, nervous also because I knew at that time that he had heard of my story and heard about uh, me coming from prison and getting involved in the, in the political movement and really advocating for youth among gangs and drugs. And so, you know, nervous, yes, I wanted the event to go very well. I was also nervous to meet him. Uh, he ultimately uh, pardoned me, uh, wiped away my felony record. I'm no longer a convicted oh, really? felon, thanks to Governor wow. Jim Doyle. And it was his, uh, I think, experience uh, working, seeing me work on the Obama campaign and ultimately going off to Washington um, in the White House that coupled with letters of support from the sentencing judge, Stu Schwartz, the district attorney, um, and uh, and my lawyer as well, all got behind a, a plea to to have Governor Doyle uh, issue that pardon. But yeah, that first event, <laughs> I guess a lot hung on that, a lot more than I even knew at the time. Uh, but that relationship uh, ended up going really well. And I think for me too, it all came back to, you know, focus on the job, focus on what you have to do that day, really focus on what's at hand. And me and my past and, and pardons and the like uh, really didn't wasn't uh, wasn't in the cards that day. It was all about organizing a good event, inviting in you know many hundreds of you know potential volunteers from the Madison area, introducing them to the campaign team, and uh, the event went really well. It was a cordial meeting uh, of Governor Doyle, and and we had a, a very successful few months ahead of us to elect Barack Obama. Nice, yeah, I remember in the video seeing that you, you were. A- you definitely got people pumped up, which I could see. So you'd be, you'd be good at that. You'd be good at that. Hence so, yes. uh, uh, maybe two months later, um, Barack Obama was planning to come to Madison. Bruce Springsteen was going to open yeah, up. Yeah. We were going to block off yeah. uh, West Wash for him. And, and so we, the video that you're referring to was we had a, at least uh, 500 volunteers, really engaged volunteers, down to the High Noon Saloon. And these 500 volunteers were going to staff the Barack Obama Bruce Springsteen event on, on West Washington Avenue. And so we had, we had 500 people packed into a volunteer training. That's not an exciting meeting. And so my role in that meeting uh, was to, to get up there and get everyone pumped up and excited about what, you know, the work we were about to do. So, yeah, I, I love a little charge of, you know, oh, Obama, oh, wait, be a part of something great and got you know, got everyone yelling. That's that's what I like to do, and yeah, I got to do that in the high noon. Now, unfortunately, Barack Obama's uh, grandmother passed away uh, the week of the event, and um, and so oh, he had to right. cancel the event literally at the last minute. Uh, to head out to Hawaii there in, in October of 2008, but but the meeting and pumping up the volunteers last. <laughs> <laughs> that's still there. We should try to put a link yeah. to the, to that if I can track it down. <laughs> Next, I think I can find that for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right, and, and I know we still have to talk about your your youth, which is more of the juicy part, but um, yeah, but still have some more professional questions. At some point, I should we should segue into your youth, but uh, I'm I'm curious how it was working at the the White House and what did he do there. I wish I could write myself a letter today, um, back in in 2009. I was walking up Langdon Street. Um, I'd already been hired back by Barack Obama for the uh, health care push. Um, so Obama for America, the presidential campaign, turned into Organizing for America, an organizing project of the, the DNC. So I was working for the DNC in Wisconsin, organizing. At that time, we had five of eight congressional representatives who were Democratic. My job was to get all five of the Wisconsin Democrats to commit publicly to supporting health care. We could get all the Democrats on board and on board with single payer and the like. Uh, we would have the confidence to push ahead through the House and Senate. And Obama would, would sign health care into law. I get a phone call walking up Langdon Street from block number. It goes to voicemail. I listen to it a minute later, and it's the White House. Uh. The acting chief of staff of the White House Drug Policy Office who says, we have your resume here. We'd love to talk to you about a position. Give me a call at your convenience. That, that's just a moment where, you know, everything stopped. Uh. And I just couldn't comprehend. And what I didn't know at the time was never in American history had anyone gone from the jailhouse to the White House. A convicted felon had never been cleared to work in the White House. And so I didn't even know how impossible this was. But I called back, I shaved, I put on a suit, I drove (laughs) out to D.C. 
I walk into the White House. I'm sitting under the presidential seal waiting to get called in. I get called in. I have an interview uh, with the brand-new drug czar, uh, Gil Kralikowski, who just came as the Seattle police chief. The day he was appointed, the headlines was, no more war on drugs. And this is really what uh, what the Obama White House has done for these eight years, is to just do away with the language uh, and to start to chip away at the policy that looks at uh, drug users and uh, and those who possess drugs as criminals. And it really tipped the scales back to treating it as the, the public health crisis that it is and responding with prevention and intervention and treatment instead of law enforcement. So I'm, you know, on all levels, you know, I've been to prison, you know, I've struggled on this issue for, for the better part of my life. And here I am sitting with the drugs are. And he says, you know, I, I see on, I see on paper, you got a lot of, a lot of good stuff here, but, uh, you know, tell me who you are. And so I opened up the big deal and I shared my story and, and what I was working on. And, and they thought it'd be a good fit to have me at the white house. So give all this background to say, what ended up happening is the Secret Service says no. Like, mm-hmm. no way Obama's like, you guys can't start filling the White House with felons. No. <laughs> and so the FBI uh, decided to send a field agent out to Madison to interview family, friends, ex-girlfriends, ex-coworkers, uh, ex-bosses, <laughs> to just find out, yeah, okay, this guy's not trustworthy. He's not safe. Right. There you go, Secret Service. Now you got something to, to back up your, your claim. Because there's a, there's a political battle between Obama and his staff and the administration. You know, the, the FBI is there. The Secret Service is there all the time. They have a job to keep, uh, to keep the president safe, even against his own wishes sometimes. You know, so they yeah. said no um, to my hire. But after meeting uh, about 40 people that I know of, um, all family, friends, coworkers, wow. and the like, the FBI came back out with a report that says, you know, you got to let this guy in. He's the real deal. He's trustworthy. Uh, he really has turned his life around, and he really is the one to talk about these issues. So the FBI kind of turned into an advocate, and the Secret Service eventually approved me. And, and I was I started in the White House in August of, of 2009, uh, a few months later. And then, you know, what I'd say about working in there is I – I wish I could write myself a letter to say, you know, you don't need to fight every battle every day. You can take a longer term view on some of these battles. I I came into the White House from, you know, hippie activist Madison, Wisconsin, with a really extreme progressive ideology. And the system doesn't work that way. But even inside the White House, a good White House is going to have a lot of different points of view represented at the policy table. And so I, I immediately alienated myself, you know, speaking up in our first senior level policy retreat when the drug czar says, okay, I've got all the smartest people in the room. Some countries are starting to legalize. Some places are starting to decriminalize. I want to get a pulse in the room. The head of the office of supply reduction. So the, the man who's in charge of two thirds of the $15 billion budget waging covert operations from Afghanistan all the way through to the Andes and Peru and Columbia says, you know, law enforcement's the way, you know, keeping it illegal is the way, you know, we've got to blah, blah, blah. And I, and I rose my hand and I said, you know, there's a lot of individuals and they see a police officer rolling up to the house do not think that help is on the way. The police are synonymous with breaking up homes, breaking up families and, and jail time. I said something worth considering is if we as a people couldn't respond uh, to those struggling with drugs with, you know, sending out uh, a caseworker, a social worker, you know, someone to open up in a dialogue to get to learn a bit better the individual situation, the family situation, and maybe start to suggest community interventions, you know, wraparound services. Prison is so expensive, and it often just turns people into criminals. And so, you know, by speaking out so boldly and right away every day, uh, I, I didn't play the political game. I didn't build the long-term relationships uh, that I would uh, if I ever went back back into the belly of the beast. And so I fought a lot of fights. I was a little too extreme. And uh, and I think by the time I left the White House, I learned a lot of lessons by doing things, I think, in, in the wrong way in a lot of instances. Um, my key takeaway for working at the White House, though, is that Policy change happens when the more risk-averse in an institution. So if you're trying to change policy at Apple computers, you don't like what they're doing with labor in Africa or minerals in Congo. If you're trying to change a U.S. law 
there are going to be risk-averse policymakers around that boardroom, around that policy table. And your job isn't to appeal uh, to those that you agree with at the policy table. You're not trying to identify, you know, in my case, one or two lefty progressives, um, and then you've won the argument, and then the change will come. No, you have to build an argument and create a, a pathway to progress that involves and includes and, and empowers the risk-averse. And so the way the risk-averse inside of the White House tend to come around to seeing the benefits of a certain policy change is, you know, a lot of consistent narrative in the media, a lot of media around a given issue, uh, influential groups speaking out about a specific type of change on a given issue. Students have the stereotype of not being politically involved, you know, the, the, the collectivist generation, millennials. And so if you can show, you know, organized groups of youth around college campuses around the country, you know, if celebrities, influencers like our own Aaron Rodgers and others start speaking out on behalf of an issue, and if the students and the celebrities, the influencers, and the thought leaders from academia and NGOs are all starting to speak in unison around a given issue, then at that point in time, I saw some of the most risk-averse advisors say, oof. This is a real political issue. Mm. I, I, I think we should examine making this change. And so my, my takeaway was, you know, fighting a little headstrong for myself. And so learning how to be a little bit more diplomatic. But then the big takeaway is how change really happens in America. And some of that critical mass we as activists have to build up before we can think that or expect that that change is going to come. Mm. No, that that is interesting. It's well put, and right, you can't just dive in there and start um, spearing a bunch of words. You have to lay the foundation, get to know other people and how they think, and yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, but and that's uh, so. Let's uh, yeah. So after the the White House, I mean, that's kind of what you're you're doing. You've been doing. Can you tell us a little bit about what you, the work you've done in the, with the Congo, and and then after that, we'll uh, get into your youth. But uh, yeah. What have you been doing since? Yeah, so when I was when I was in undergrad uh, at the University of Wisconsin, uh, coincidentally, my roommate uh, Kawaii Ewan um, was what the U.S. media refers to as one of the lost boys of South Sudan. Uh, oh, really? Tens of thousands of, of youth uh, were fleeing from South Sudan. Uh, there's a, a raging war. This is before the, the genocide in Darfur. This is between the north and the south of that vast country. And uh, youth were fleeing because youth were getting, you know, swallowed into the fight as child soldiers. And so if a mother wanted to keep her young boy from becoming a child soldier, she just looked him in the eyes and said, walk east. And they literally, you know, fighting off lions and drought and dehydration, uh, having to do some things that, that human beings uh, shouldn't have to do to, to survive and endure, endure this long trek in the refugee camps in, in neighboring Ethiopia and Kenya. Uh, Koa Ewan was then adopted by an American family, and uh, he and I met uh, in college uh, and were introduced through a teacher who said, okay, you're both coming from some different walks of life. I think you guys should at least know each other. So that's how I met Koa. I was fresh out of prison. He was coming to UW from, um, from his adopted family in North Dakota. And uh, he invited me to Africa when he became a U.S. citizen uh, the spring of our sophomore year, the same month I got off parole and could apply for a passport. So we applied for passports together. We went to Africa, my first time leaving the country, and there's a war raging on. And I'm meeting with his family members who are all refugees who fled South Sudan into neighboring Kenya. And... For the next 10 years of my life, I continued visiting Africa, of course, getting more vested in uh, Ko's family and, and struggles and, and the larger political issues, but feeling quite impotent. I mean, what, what can I do? And I see so many instances, especially white American attempts at, you know, saving the Africans that really disturbed me and disgusted me. So there's a whole lot of development I didn't want to be a part of, uh, but it was coming out of the White House. And having uh, having acknowledged the linkages of Western political corruption and, and Western economic interests that is playing a huge role in devastating uh, Central Africa, in particular the east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, and I realized that if, if Apple and Intel and some of the world's major tech companies 
and Glencore and ENRC and some of the world's, world's major mining companies cleaned up their act, cleaned up their supply chains, uh, got serious about where their minerals are coming from and kicked the armed groups out of the supply chain. Armed groups who are profiting hundreds of millions of dollars a year and using rape as a weapon of war to secure mining sites from local communities. But if Apple and Intel and Glencore and ENRC got serious about corporate social responsibility, the world would be a better place. And so when I left the White House, I took a job leading the Enough Projects Race Over Congo campaign for the next three years. And that's where I got to meet, you know, Aaron Rodgers and, and Robin Wright and Emmanuel Shriki, Andy Malumba, and so many incredibly inspiring individuals that wanted to lend their name and their platform to progress. I got to organize a, a campus movement uh, around North America and dipping into Europe. And we ultimately had success uh, petitioning Apple to address its supply chain and Congo's conflict minerals in its supply chain, uh, set up an event at Consumer Electronics Show, the world's largest tech conference in January 2013, where Robin Wright, who I went to Congo with a few years earlier, uh, joined Brian Kersanich, Intel's CEO, the world's largest chip manufacturer, on stage to make the public statement that every chip Intel ships from here on out would be Congo conflict-free. And these companies invested millions. Uh, they, they took big strides to clean up their supply chain. So I started this, to realize the fruits of our labor, that this, this model of working with students, finding people who are highly influential in society, and hammering a very consistent yet positive, forward-looking narrative in the media can have results. And so that led to, in 2014, uh, leaving the Enough Project to start uh, a new startup and for us to launch a flagship campaign called Stand with Congo, um, where now having secured commitments from the world's major tech companies, we're going on to, to the world's major mining companies, which, you know, juxtaposed to, you know, San Francisco based tech companies, which have some very naturally left leaning humanitarian oriented CEOs. Let's just say I'm starting to deal with the world's real James Bond villains now. And I think I've got my work cut out for me. Oh man, what, I think you're making us all feel a little inadequate of what we do on a daily basis. But... <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope not, man. <laughs> Anyone can do this. Just, uh, yeah, no. I know. Refuse anybody, to give up. Anybody can do it, but you're doing it. Um, no, that's awesome. And uh, and then you also have, um, which I like this name is uh, Ford. Is it Ford with steel steer? Oh, wait, it was steer Ford. Steer Ford. Yeah, steer Ford. Yeah, steer Ford. Yeah, yeah. And so that is you can. You kind of you help uh, any type of uh, well, in general crises that somebody if they want to you can help kind of set up campaigns and you know help ameliorate the situation. Is that essentially what the Steer Forward does? Yeah, what Steer Forward is all about is you know harmonize, organize, politicize. You know, sorry, sorry, let me start over again. What Steer Forward is all about is humanize, organize, politicize. You know, what's happening in, in Africa's Great Lakes and Congo, but what's also happening right here in America and even in Wisconsin, our own prison systems is, you know, individuals read a lot of news about prison, prison overcrowding. They read a lot of news about African war, but they're not making a human connection. They're not putting a face to the issue. And so at Steer Forward, we start out any public engagement with a film, a film series where we can put a face and, and bring the humanity back to the center of, of the conversation. So we like to humanize the situation first. Uh, one of our first projects was to work with uh, New York-based uh, PCI Media Impact uh, and Paul G. Allen out of Seattle. His family foundation funded the I Survived Ebola campaign. So what we had in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, uh, really horrific outbreak, thousands of people coming down and dying with Ebola and the later on in the infection, the more contagious the individual becomes. We saw a spread at a at horrific rate throughout West Africa. And of course, everyone in the world in late 2014 was worried about, you know, Ebola jumping to, uh, to other countries. And so what Steer Forward did was to, uh, you know, hire up and recruit some of our best filmmakers that we worked in Africa with and dispatch them out to Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea to interview 
Ebola survivors? Who who were the outliers? Who were the heroes? You know, who was the lone survivor in their community? What did they do? What steps did they take? So by humanizing the situation, we produced a 30-part documentary series, 10 parts in each of those three countries, where everyday country men and women from that country just shared their own very personal story about when they experienced symptoms, how they were feeling. They went to the the Ebola treatment unit. They received treatment from the doctors. They're scary. They look like they're in space suits, but we received treatment. (laughs) I lived. Now I'm back home. And so disseminating the critical public health message, reducing stigma around Ebola survivors were our goals. And by humanizing the situation, we were able to organize the community. Uh, Ebola survivors, uh, you know, began forming associations, working together in part as a result of the campaign and the film, uh, but then really maintain that engagement at the, at the state level um, to politicize the movement, to advocate for, you know, increased services, increased access to health care. So you can politicize the things that, that individuals are advocating for, which is what we're all about. And so, you know, in the context of Congo or or uh, or U.S. mass incarceration, we look to humanize, we look to organize the, the various, you know, key demographics or constituencies, students, you know, celebrities, athletes, and the like, who can make a big difference in, in public thinking and raising awareness around an issue, and then politicize. You know, it all comes down to pushing for that ultimate change in the world so we're not just standing around talking about something, you know, we're demanding a very specific and concrete change. Uh, and in the course of Congo right now, in our Stand with Congo campaign, we're demanding that the Western mining companies cease signing secretive deals, paying billion-dollar bribes to Congo's President Kabila, and instead enter into mining contracts in transparency and in, in the public light and allow the Congolese people uh, to enter into the conversation about how Congo's resources should be divided up and spent for Congolese people. Hmm. Interesting. And so if, if anybody had uh, an issue they wanted to uh, work on, I mean, could they hire Steer Forward to uh, work on it even anywhere in the world? Or Absolutely. Yeah. Steer Forward has, has worked with groups on, on public health in Africa. Uh, we're working uh, with a group on, on preserving tigers in, in South Asia and huh. shutting down the Chinese tiger market. We've worked on some conservation projects. Uh, we're working uh, right now looking at a, a project in Afghanistan to boost their judicial sector. Um, so, yeah, we're involved in a lot of different issues, got a lot of great, talented people that all kind of fit into this model of humanize, organize, politicize, which, you know, very simply it means making expert film, planning, you know, robust, engaging, targeted campaigns, and ultimately, uh, you know, through the media, uh creating those those shifts in policy to, to solve those issues. So yeah, we, we work with uh, with a lot of folks as long as our values align. I like it. Can you, 20 years ago, could you imagine that you're, what you're doing now? <laughs> when you're, I, I thought I was more on the Pablo Escobar track. Yeah. So instead of being dead, uh, you know, having a little startup and working on some of these issues, I'm a very happy man. Yeah, I bet. And so... Yeah, so I spent we spent a lot more time in professional life I, just because it's so interesting. Um, but uh, let's go. Let's talk about uh, your youth days a little bit, and uh, and plus I didn't know much about professional life. I may know about some, but I probably know a little bit more about your youth days at least. And uh, yeah, so just for the the audience, you know, JD was I, I probably started I was at like sixth or seventh grade. Probably uh, met you, and JD was always kind of one of the 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 rough bad kids but always like super nice like he was always he was a little edgy but always very nice like to... <laughs> and uh so and but then I just kept I think escalating a little bit and uh but yeah so a little bit, little bit. <laughs> um yeah I mean do you remember one of the first times that you did something that was uh pretty illegal um beyond uh, like I said in the notes beyond j- jaywalking <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, my, my, everyone's middle school years are awkward, you know, and, and my, my parents went through a divorce and my mother had some really scary health issues. So, you know, I, I lost it. You know, I, I, I freaked out. You know, I, I, I didn't feel like I belonged. I, I didn't feel happy or safe at home. And, and, you know, I, I started, I started sneaking out at night. And I've always wondered, you know, what, what was I looking for? What was I trying to do? I'd convinced a couple of friends to meet up at our elementary school, John Near, in the playground at midnight on a school night. And it's like that that's where I felt a sense of belonging. 
And, uh, you know, we were sneaking out. We were sneaking out every night, and eventually that got a little old, so we started running around the neighborhood. And, and you know, one thing led to the other. At the time, we're watching movies and listening to music. They're all about thug life, and we wanted to be tough. And, uh, and so we started, you know, sneaking into some open garages. Um, and eventually one night, I opened up a car door that was parked in the street and was looking in the car. We didn't need money. We're, we're really just being being vandals and, yeah. and being ridiculous and disrespectful <laughs> to people and their property. And here are the car keys hanging out of the ignition. So I think that was the, the major step up in our, in our ridiculous <laughs> crime spree was, you know, me and a couple of buddies, uh, I found the keys in his car and you know, I snatched the keys and we ran down the block and had a little, had a little team meeting and, and our infinite wisdom decided that I would go up, uh, put the car in neutral and, uh, and we tried to get the car away from the house quietly. So we did it. We stole that car and five minutes into our joyride, uh, past midnight on the sleepy west side of Madison, Wisconsin, a Madison police officer all of a sudden is behind us as we're driving down Gammon Road, uh, very late on a weeknight. So our, our, our joyride didn't last long. Uh, the cop wasn't paying any special attention to us, uh, luckily. And, but we still turned as quick as we could, made a couple quick turns, and ditched the car, you know, less than a mile from where we took it, horrified of seeing the cop. Uh, we got away with it. Nothing happened that day. But, you know, as, as the summer went on and, and we stole a few more cars and broke in a few more houses, you know, shit hit the fan and ended up getting sent away to juvie for uh, the better part of a year for stealing cars and a string of burglaries. Yes, and, and, I, uh, and, and some of those... Uh, friends you're with we probably could have them on the podcast too but we won't um <laughs> i'm not sure they want me sure yeah, we'll that part know, of it. Yeah. everyone's gone on to being like lawyers and i know and they're like dude don't don't talk about those years yeah <laughs> your, your crew at least i mean i don't know maybe your entire crew but a lot of their crew has been gone to do some pretty interesting stuff which is uh that's just what it is yeah that's why sometimes the rebellious kids do the most interesting things but it is. I know one one of our best buddies has gone on to, to to build you know jet engines for NASA in the Boulder area, and everyone's <laughs> gone on to do some pretty, pretty interesting stuff. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Um. <laughs> so uh, yeah, and I remember one time vividly that uh, coming into middle school is probably like eighth grade. And seeing all these tracks, these tire tracks, and the the grass, and they're like, "Who did this? Like, this is ridiculous!" Like, and then, and then, but you know, we, but then the the word got around that it was probably JD. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I don't. I don't... <laughs> yeah, and that was uh, I mean, that was one of the first times when I'm like, "Wow, they're really escalating this to another level." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we couldn't have been bigger dumbasses and like, you know, the, the school's there to try to, you know, create a space for youth and for us to be, you know, pissing off the school and damaging the school's lawn and me mouthing off the teachers like that. That's my biggest regret from my youth is, you know, it challenging in any way the school and, and bad mouthing teachers who are, you know, living a very thankless life, already dealing with very difficult parents as they're trying to play positive role in youth lives and that's my biggest regret is all these really stupid things i did to act out against authority but my authority at the time was school and yeah we were we were real dumbasses <laughs> and what which uh what year did you go to juvie for a year um so spring break of my freshman year of high school i got sent away for the okay. the burglaries and, and stealing cars and i was gone 10 and a half months and when I got back, they didn't want me back in my high school, so I went to the downtown high school uh, for the rest of my my high school years. Okay, that's right. And uh, and yeah. And so, did you when when you're you probably weren't, but like community robberies because you know I I still have a mask and we still have some uh, burglaries, but it's all like. And I always say, I bet it's just a bunch of high school kids. So it's a, it's a lot of a uh, garage break-ins and car break-ins. I'm like, I knew a bunch of stupid kids who did that too. And it's like, you know, it's not like necessarily uh, super dangerous folks but so did you did you ever think about the impact to like the people you're probably freaking out people <laughs> you know that they were just burglarized and here it is just some uh, kids did you ever uh, think about the the people you uh robbed 
Yeah, that's that's really my my major regret is you know ha- you know the, the feeling that that I led uh, families to feel when they'd wake up and realize that you know something's missing from the car, something's missing from the garage, uh, and our stupidest of moments actually going into someone's home. Um, again, young kids, we were sober. You know, I was, I was against drugs and alcohol at this time. I'd never touched the stuff. We're just young knucklehead kids who just want to be destructive. You know, there's no goal. There's, there's no, uh, no ex- specific intent. We just want to be destructive. And so here we are going into people's garages and homes. And what I didn't realize at the time, uh, was just that feeling of insecurity and vulnerability, exposure and victimization, uh, that we spread around, uh, our, our home community. And that's what I feel like, you know, for many years, I owed a debt to society and, wanted to pay back as a form of restitution, working with families, working with youth, uh, working with the police, working with the local community uh, for many years to feel like I could begin to pay back that debt by putting all my efforts into preventing it from happening again, working with youth in in a similar situation. Because, yeah, it's, it's so not cool. It's so disrespectful. A lot of people, me included, like to differentiate the murders and the rapists, you know, the aggravated assaultists, from our nonviolent first-time offenders. And I like to talk about the prison population as housing millions of nonviolent individuals. It's not to say that nonviolent crime shouldn't be addressed. It's just to say nonviolent crime is different in nature and it poses a different threat to safety that violent crime does. It's still crime, it still creates victims, it still is a loss of, of security. And so have put in, you know, tireless efforts uh, over the now 16 years that I've been out of prison, um, to, to heal, to heal communities, to help families heal, uh, and to try to prevent, uh, nonviolent crime and its consequences since. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, you've done some amazing stuff, so you can definitely, uh, forgive yourself. <laughs> I think, uh, we all, we, I mean, it's, it's, yeah, it's, you could have gone a, a different direction, that's for sure. And, uh, you didn't. And so how did you get caught? Your, uh, freshman year. Oh, I mean, besides, besides, every, besides everyone knowing what you were doing, but <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, you know, if, if you take a peek at your forward, we're pretty good at, at, at publicizing yeah. what we're up to, telling our story. Yeah. Well, I was the same way as a teenager, you know, just pounding my chest. Hey, you know, I, I'm driving around stolen cars. You want to ride at lunchtime? So, yeah, I, I made a lot of noise about anything I was ever doing, which which meant certain doom very, very quickly in the, in the criminal affairs. So it's funny though, me and, uh, me and two buddies, uh, Jim and, and Brody were driving down, um, Yellowstone drive. And in that first stolen car I was telling you about, this is a few weeks later. We'd, you know, went back and got it from the place. We ditched it that night. We moved it to another parking lot. We were taking this car out every once in a while. We're driving the car down Yellowstone drive and unbeknownst to us, um, our, a uh, recent Cub Scout leader saw us driving the car, what? called the police and said, that's Jimmy Steer in the car. I know he's only 14. He shouldn't be driving. So Madison police were driving down Yellowstone and we drive, we passed them head on and they were looking into us and we were looking into the police car. And I looked in the rear room and the police car did a super quick 180 oh, no. and turned on its lights. And so we thought we had just gotten recognized yeah. for whatever reason that the car got recognized, but I got into a little bit of a high speed chase. I uh, looked at my <laughs> looked at my companions and said, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna jump out of the car and the car's gonna keep going. The cops gonna have to stay with the car. We're gonna run off and be safe." So I slowed the car down to about ten. I looked over at Jim and, and and Brody and I said, "All right, guys, three, two, one!" And all the doors opened up. We ran off in different directions, never to see each other again. We all spread like cockroaches. The car continued on, took out a couple of trees before it came to a stop. But the cops were waiting for me when I got home because they knew who I was before oh, because they even found us. Cause they, yeah. <laughs> so that that's how I got arrested at, at age 14. Oh, man. That was, a, that was like Hollywood. <laughs> it was quite a quite a day. Yeah, quite, quite a vivid day. I don't think I'll ever forget any of the moments of that day. Did, and did the other guys get in trouble at all? Um, I, I was hoping not. Uh, and I took, you know, it's like I, I took responsibility for, I was like, yeah, I yeah, was driving. Yeah. I stole the car. I did this. I did that. Uh, they, they didn't let go, you know, like they really want to know who we were with and, and who else was involved. And so I took all the blame that I could, but my brother still got, 
in a little bit of trouble. No one got locked up. No okay. one got in yeah, yeah. that serious of trouble, but they, they got a little slap on the wrist too. Nice. Okay. Um, all right. And so how was, uh, how was Juvie? Was it pretty fun? Juvie was a good time, man. <laughs> lots of Netflix, you know, lots of, lots of paintball, uh, really fun activities. <laughs> Juvie, this is this is the thing people don't know. Juvie is way worse than prison. Like really? Juvie is way more violent. Like picture prison, yeah, and then take away age, experience, and maturity. Same group of guys, and they're all raging hormones with an adolescent male mind. Uh, a tag phrase in Wisconsin, probably in a lot of states, gladiator school. Everybody is so insecure, so young, so hormonal. Everyone is constantly testing each other beating each other up, challenging each other psychologically. And Juvie, if anything, prepared me to be a model prison inmate in, in my adult years. Juvie was super aggressive, super prejudiced, super violent. Yeah, Ju- Juvie, Juvie sucks. <laughs> wow. So did you uh, fear for your safety on a regular basis? or how? I, I mean, I, I feared for my safety a ton in juvie, but then I think even more so in, in adult prison. Because in adult prison, all of a sudden, you know, I, I'm I'm sharing the showers and I'm, you know, sharing, you know, very scary, dark, concrete rooms uh, with men who do rape, uh, with men who have murdered, um, and, and men who have, you know, aggravated and, and beaten and assaulted a whole lot of people for very little reasons. And so, you know, having watched Shawshank and, and, and yeah, having the same experience of prison as any American going into it, you know, I was terrified. And seeing some fights and, and seeing some sexual violence, uh, you know, firsthand in prison, you know, it only heightened my, my awareness and my fear. So that the years I spent in adult prison were, yeah, some of the most insecure and fearful of my life. And, and I think, you know, as much as, as a male can in this country, um, having having some empathy around rape culture and what it feels like to walk down an alley or a street or go into a certain room and and worry that someone else is going to walk in there uh, and and rape me and and living with the constant threat or fear of sexual violence uh, and or just violence um, that that feeling that that constant pressure that constant awareness that you're in an unsafe place where unsafe things happen. Uh, that, that I think has formed a lot of my kind of deeper values around advocacy around, you know, sexual violence yeah. in Congo, but addressing mass incarceration here in the States to feel vulnerable sexually, to feel, uh, a threat, uh, because rape is real and rape is happening in that environment, uh, is something that far too many millions of Americans, especially, you know, women on U.S. college campuses feel every day. Mm, interesting. And do you uh, do you think about prison on a regular basis? Just like that feeling that you've had that you had. Yeah, you can you can take the man out of prison, but you can't <laughs> take the prison out of the man. Yeah, when I'm you know even watching Making a Murderer in our great home state of Wisconsin, upholding an example of some of the best in criminal law enforcement, that was sarcastic. <laughs> um, and and watching you know watching all of the many shows and films from Orange Is the New Black to some of the, the amazing documentaries out right now. Um, it's, it's hard. I mean, it, it's hard to watch. Um, there's a lot of moments when watching these films and these shows when something that feels so matter of fact and is shared as just a little quick fact in the film hits me and resonates because I realize that it's because human beings in the criminal justice system aren't seen as human beings, that society isn't, isn't, is, is not treating individuals as human beings that's the stuff that really hits me. That's the stuff that hurts and affects. And it's not the stuff that jumps out in a film or in a show uh, when people are talking about prison. People just think it's so matter of fact that, you know, prisoner, prisoners are less than human. You know, they're other than us. And that, that's where the humanize comes in for uh, the work that we do. And, yeah, that, that's what makes watching and, and reading uh, about prison so difficult. It's just our, our inherent prejudice against prisoners. Mm, interesting. And so... No, that makes sense. So, so after juvie, well, what did you do? Or what, uh, you know, you got back to, back into it. How did you get? How did you start getting back into it? And what did you do? As far as uh, so, I went. Yeah. I went to juvie twice. I went to juvie when I was fourteen for you know stealing a couple of cars and breaking into a few houses. When I was in juvie, that's the first time I learned about marijuana. Learned about selling drugs. I learned about that whole side of, of the criminal underworld. 
Um, we were just young punks and were quite scared of drugs and alcohol ourselves at age 14. When I got out at age 15, um, I had earned a, a bachelor in drug dealing and had made some connections you know, out of the Chicago land, um, for some pretty amazing deals. And so I really learned like a new trade when I was, I was gone at juvie. I was really immature, um, taking direction from all the wrong people. And so when I got out of juvie, I, I very immediately started smoking marijuana for the first time and, and selling it, uh, there at, uh, at the Madison schools to, to kids my age. And within, within about six months, um, got arrested for marijuana because I was up at Hoyt Park and Madison's near West Side uh, with a lot of marijuana and smoking marijuana outside in the public. And we were <laughs> shooting a BB gun at public signs. Uh, didn't take long for the cops to get called. <laughs> so there I go again. And uh, and when I got sent away to juvie uh, for marijuana, I went away for a big chunk of my junior and senior year again. Uh, and then when I got out, uh, played it cool, uh, wrapped up school. I realized that, you know, if, if I didn't, if I didn't get some good grades and get some good grades quick, I wasn't going to graduate and that, that didn't seem cool. So I, I graduated, uh, but very soon after graduation, uh, a few things happened. You know, my parents were exhausted. <laughs> They're like, you're 18, you're out of here. You know, you're no longer our, our worry, our problem. The court also completely let go of me. There was no aftercare. There was no follow-up plan. I was released from the juvenile system. So at 18, I had rented a cheap apartment with a couple of friends and the courts and my parents had all washed their hands of me. So I, I got back in, but got back in way deeper with way bigger connections at a way higher volume. And it was a very, very short amount of time. I watched Johnny Depp in the movie Blow, and that really reminds me of just how quick and easy it is for someone um, to get in way too deep. And I think I've got some natural abilities around organizing and being an entrepreneur yeah. and building networks that, you know, with, with my skill set, you know, marijuana was, it was just going to be a, a big disaster almost overnight. So in less than a year, um, I was living in La Ciel in the penthouse downtown Madison, <laughs> uh, and, uh, the, the narcotics task force served a search warrant and found seven pounds of marijuana, $10,000 cash. And the thing that really screwed me that I had no idea was, was the two guys who had came up from Chicago to sell me the weed that were in my apartment for the raid, they had a loaded gun on them. And so when I went off to court and went off to prison, uh, I was, I was in prison under the, under the understanding of an armed drug sale when I myself had never had a weapon and never been in a fight and, and, and really avoid uh, avoid the physical and threats and harms to every every extent possible. So you know what I was trying to be is a peaceful weed dealer, and uh, and those guys having a gun uh, made everything much worse. So instead of getting a chance at a minimum security prison, I was right into the big house uh, with the worst of guys, and so it made my prison experience much harsher because uh, those guys from Chicago ended up having a gun. Oh my goodness. Um... Yeah. Interesting. Well, and so did you ever deal anything else besides marijuana? Um, yeah, I did a whole lot of experimenting, but okay. didn't get too into okay. anything. You know, I, I, the, the worst, I think the worst mindset a youth can have is I'll try everything once. <laughs> That's the most destructive <laughs> mindset to have when it comes to crime and drugs, because it only takes trying something once. Uh, if you've got a predisposition to addiction or a predisposition to, you know, taking risks, and, and trying new things that one time can very easily lead to the 1,000th time. I'm lucky and fortunate um, that I didn't get too heavy into anything else and was able to live a, a drug and alcohol-free life when I got out of prison and, and, and focus on my health and, and live a healthy life. But there's a whole lot of people in the experiment with some of the other stuff. Uh, that becomes a lifelong uh, struggle for them. Hmm, interesting. And and you said, uh, you know, your parents had enough of, of you, which I can understand that. Um, and so, <laughs> so uh, I mean, and uh, yeah, you know, at, at what point did you think about your parents being like, man, I should probably stop this because, you know, it's just super hard on my family and parents and, well, society too. But, um, you know, at what point did uh, that kind of resonate with you? Yeah, it was October of, of 1998. Um, I, I got sentenced to go to prison and there was an article in the, in the Wisconsin paper about it. And I just felt a sense of shame I'd never felt before. I'm no longer a juvenile. I'm 19 years old. So my name, my photo, uh, it's right there in, in the state newspaper. So of course my parents 
everyone you've worked with, everyone you've built relationships with over their lives. You know, it's just the deepest sense of shame uh, that I brought on the family. And so when I got sent to prison and, and, and just felt horrible for the effect I had on everyone else, um, I wrote, I wrote three letters my first day in prison. I wrote a letter to my father. I said, you know, first off, I'm not asking for money. I'm not asking for anything. I'm not asking you to bail me out of anything. I need my father in my life, and I just want to know that you and I have a relationship. Sent a similar letter to my mother, and uh, and then I sent a letter to Shelley Dutch, the, the woman who founded and owns uh, Connections Counseling, a teen center I had gone through uh, before I went to court, and uh, and asked the same as Shelley Dutch. Shelley Dutch invited me uh, to have a volunteer internship when I first got out of prison. Again, this is this is something that completely saved my life. It, it connected me to the community, allowed me to start building some positive relationships, and it allowed me to make sense of shame and the stigma I carried from my past and turn it into something positive. And that's the transformative process we've got to figure out as a society. How do we help people deal with that shame, deal with the stigma that they're enduring, and help them reconnect to society in a positive way? And my mother and my father, thankfully and luckily, welcomed me back in and visited me when I was gone. And, you know, we're, we're, we're standing there with open arms when I got out of prison. And we've had excellent relationships ever since. Mm, interesting. So it's, yeah, so it sounds like a big part of, because I was curious, like we talked about, you know, you could have gone one way or the other, but um, it was a big part of the, the relationships that you had when you got out. Was that the big difference, do you think, compared to some other folks, what they have? Everybody needs, I really think that, you know, maybe, maybe the, you know, one in a billion can, can do this whole, whole life thing on their own. But I really think as human beings, <laughs> we need an ally. Like we just need one anchor. We don't have to have an army of supporters. We don't have to have a team standing behind us, but you really need an ally. And if things have fallen apart at home and, and or your mother or your father are part of the problem, uh, and, and, you know, you need that teacher. You need that coach. Uh, you need that friend's parent uh, to step in and just look you in the eyes and say, you know what? I believe in you. You're supposed to be here, and uh, you got a life worth living. You, I really think that we need one ally. And uh, so to have a couple of those for me when I first got out of prison, it, it made all the difference in the world. No, that makes sense. All right. And so we're uh, almost done here at the interview. I, I got a couple quick uh, questions. One is just on the – the prison. Do you do you have any stories that you ever share with, uh, let's say, the youth to essentially? I don't know if scare them is the right word, but to say like prison is <laughs> real and you don't want to go there, and this is why. Do you have have any stories you can share over the air like that? <laughs> you bet. So I, it's, a, it's really a story about resiliency, but it, it's also uh, you know I, I think it highlights the insecurity, the threat, and the fear. It, it has a happy ending, but it, it very well. Couldn't have gone, could have, could have gone another way, and it definitely goes another way for, for a lot of people in prison. So, you know, I, I went into prison. I'm, I'm about five foot, ten inches. I'm about 170 pounds today. When I went into prison, same height was 129 pounds. I mean, <laughs> the skinniest burnout hippie pot dealer you'd ever seen, skin and bone. And I wind up in, you know, maximum security prison. Uh, a whole lot of murders and rapists. And I thought to myself, what I've got to do is got to get big and ripped. This is what I told myself. This is my brilliant plan to survive prison, <laughs> yep. but to get big and muscular. That, that's how I was going to predict. So the very first time I went to the gym, there's a whole lot about prison politics I didn't know. And what I didn't know is, you know, the, the races don't mix. I, I grew up, uh, you know, having a lot of friends who are, you know, African-American, Asian, uh, Indian, uh, Latino, uh, we didn't think much about race day when we were growing up no. and, you know, we, we never heard racial slurs. Like we just lived in the nice little bubble where people <laughs> loved each other, regardless of the color of their skin. And it is a little bubble, a whole lot of the world and a whole lot of the rest of Wisconsin is living and breathing Trumpisms and racial slurs and the like. Well, I, I was new to that world. So I didn't know how divided it was. And I just went right up to the weight machines where all the black guys were working out, no white guys allowed. I didn't know any better. They looked at me like, what is this little guy doing here? And I just worked out the whole hour, you know, lifting barely the weight of the bar, like 45-pound weight bar, push, 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 you know, doing all my little workouts, doing little arm curls. Again, the skinniest, most pathetic-looking guy in prison. 
when you haven't worked out, you haven't worked out in a while, or in my case, ever, and get done with a really intense workout, your, your arms are like rubber. You know, you could barely hold a pencil to sign your name. So here I am, first time in prison working out, going to the showers with all the big dudes for the very first time. I got my bar soap in my hand, and I'm, I'm soaping my body there in the showers, surrounded by some of the biggest, most intimidating dudes out there. And with those rubbery arms, I'm moving the soap around my body. The soap bar projects out of my hand, <laughs> up into the air, a big old arc, and a really loud, dramatic splash as the soap hits the floor far away from me in the showers. Everybody in the prison showers looks at the soap, looks at me, and I'm thinking to myself, Dave, okay, I'm in prison. Are they looking at me because it's the prison joke? It's the cliche. I just dropped the soap in the shower, and so it's the cliche. Or are they looking at me because I'm in prison and I dropped the soap, and I'm about to get it? I had no way of knowing. That's the scariest moment of my life. You know, with no, oh, with no, with no near, near competition. And so what I did right then and there, when everyone's looking at me and they're looking at the soap and like, it was the time for me to say or do something or something was going to be said or done to me. And I moved my hand in a big sweeping arc up in front of my body and around to the back. And I cupped my butthole. I bent over a little <laughs> bit the knees to kind of cover my butthole. And I wiggled sideways over to pick up the soap. And everybody was laughing so hard <laughs> that no one did anything. And the next time I got to the gym, they were patting me on the back because they think I'm funny. <laughs> and so I, you know, I think there's a whole lot of situations in prison that could have gone a different awesome. way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but every one of those situations, I, I just got a little stroke of luck. Well, well, yeah, stroke of luck and just kind of a you. I mean, that's why you're good at what you do now, right? You know how to. <laughs> <laughs> I know how to drop the soap. <laughs> you know how to drop the soap. That's a good way to put it. That should be in your business card. Uh, I know how to drop the soap. Um, all right. Well, that's a pretty good way to end. That was a. No, this is, this is awesome. And, you know, I, I obviously didn't know. I knew some of it, but not a lot of it. And so uh, for me, of course, it was uh, personally fascinating. And, uh, and just what you've done since college is, like I said, you. We all feel a little, a uh, little uh, smaller when compared to what you're working on, but um, in a good way. I mean that. I mean what you're doing is pretty, uh, pretty important. So definitely appreciate it, JD. No, I really, I uh, thank you for showing an interest and, and giving me the opportunity to talk about some of the stuff we're working on today in, in U.S. prisons uh, over in Africa. And uh, always great to, to reconnect to, to friends from school. So thanks a lot, Dave. Definitely. Thanks. Thanks, JD. And thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Flyover Labs. And uh, hopefully, you made it through the whole entire episode. I know it's a little longer, but definitely uh, well worth the, the listen. So thanks, everyone. Bye.